0: Section 14 of My First Summer in the Sierra. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. My First Summer in the Sierra by John Muir, read by Adrian Pretzelis. August 22. Clouds none. Cool west wind. Slight hoarfrost frost on the meadows. Carlo is missing. I have been seeking him all day. In the thick woods between camp and the river, among tall grass and fallen pines, I discovered a baby fawn. At first it seemed inclined to come to me, but when I tried to catch it and got within a rod or two it turned and walked softly away choosing its steps like a cautious, stealthy, hunting cat. Then, as if suddenly called or alarmed, it began to buck and run like a grown deer, jumping high above the fallen trunks, and was soon out of sight. Possibly its mother may have called it, but I did not hear her. I don't think fawns ever leave the home thicket or follow their mothers until they are called or frightened. I am distressed about Carlo. There are several other camps and dogs not many miles from here, and I still hope to find him. He never left me before. Panthers are very rare here, and I don't think any of these cats would dare touch him. He knows bears too well to be caught by them, and as for Indians, they don't want him. August 23 Cool, bright day, hinting Indian summer. Mr. Delaney has gone to the Smith Ranch on the Twalumlee, below Hetchy Valley, thirty or forty miles from here, so I'll be alone for a week or more. Not really alone, for Carlo has come back. He was at a camp a few miles to the northwestward. He looked sheepish and ashamed when I asked him where he had been and why he had gone away without leave. He is now trying to get me to caress him and show signs of forgiveness. A wondrous wise dog! A great load is off my mind. I could not have left the mountains without him. He seems very glad to get back to me. Rose and crimson sunset, and soon after the stars appeared the moon rose in most impressive majesty over the top of Mount Dana. I sauntered up the meadow in the white light. The jet-black tree shadows were so wonderfully distinct and substantial-looking, I often stepped high in crossing them, taking them for black charred logs. August 24 Another charming day, warm and calm soon after sunrise, clouds only about point zero one, faint silky cirrus wisps, scarcely visible. Slight frost. Indian summerish, the mountains growing softer in outline and dreamy-looking, their rough angles melted off apparently. Sky at evening with fine, dark, subdued purple, almost like the evening purple of the San Joaquin plains in settled weather. The moon is now gazing over the summit of Mount Dana. Glorious, exhilarating air! I wonder if in all the world there is another mountain-range of equal height blessed with weather so fine and so openly kind and hospitable and approachable. August 25 Cool as usual in the morning, quickly changing to the ordinary, serene, generous warmth and brightness. Toward evening the west wind was cool, and sent us to the camp-fire. Of all nature's flowery, carpeted mountain-halls, none can be finer than this glacier meadow. Bees and butterflies seem as abundant as ever. The birds are still here, showing no sign of leaving for winter quarters, though the frost must bring them to mind. For my part I should like to stay here all winter, or all my life, or even all eternity. August twenty six frost this morning all the meadow grass and some of the pine needles sparkling with irised crystals flowers of light large picturesque clouds craggy like rocks are piled on mount dana reddish in color like the mountain itself the sky for a few degrees around the horizon is pale purple into which the pines dipped their spires with fine effect. Spent the day as usual looking about me, watching the changing lights, the ripening autumn colours of the grass—seeds, late-blooming gentians, asters, goldenrods—parting the meadow-grass here and there, and looking down into the underworld of mosses and liverworts watching the busy ants and beetles and other small people at work and play like squirrels and bears in a forest studying the formation of lakes and meadows moraines mountain sculpture making small beginnings in these directions charmed by the serene beauty of everything the day has been extra cloudy though bright on the whole for the clouds were brighter than common clouds about point one five which in switzerland would be considered extra clear probably more free sunshine falls on this majestic range than on any other in the world i've ever seen or heard of it has the brightest weather brightest glacier polished rocks the greatest abundance of irised spray from its glorious waterfalls the brightest forest of silver firs and silver pines more starshine moonshine and perhaps more crystal shine than any other mountain chain and its countless mirror lakes having more light poured into them glow and spangle most and how glorious the shining after the short summer showers and after frosty nights when the morning sunbeams are pouring through the crystals on the grass and pine needles and how ineffably spiritually fine is the morning glow on the mountain tops and the alpen glow of evening Well may the sierra be named not the snowy range, but the range of light. August 27 Clouds only point zero five, Mostly white and pink cumuli over the Huffman spur toward evening—frosty morning. Crystals grow in marvellous beauty and perfection of form these still nights, every one built as carefully as the grandest, holiest temple as if planned to endure for ever." Contemplating the lace-like fabric of streams outspread over the mountains, we are reminded that everything is flowing, going somewhere—animals and so-called lifeless rocks, as well as water. Thus the snow flows, fast or slow, in grand beauty-making glaciers and avalanches. The air in majestic floods carrying minerals, plant leaves, seeds, spores, with streams of music and fragrance. Water streams carrying rocks both in solution and in the form of mud particles, sand, pebbles and boulders. Rocks flow from volcanoes like water from springs, and animals flock together and flow in currents modified by stepping, leaping, gliding, flying, swimming, etc., while the stars go streaming through space, pulsed on and on forever like blood globules in Nature's warm heart. August 28 The dawn a glorious song of colour, sky absolutely cloudless, a fine crop of hoar-frost, warm after ten o'clock. The Gentians don't mind the first frost, though their petals seem so delicate. They close every night as if going to sleep, and awake fresh as ever in the morning sun-glory. The grass is a shade browner since last week, but there are no nipped wilted plants of any sort as far as I have seen. Butterflies and the grand host of smaller flies are benumbed every night. But they hover and dance in the sunbeams over the meadows before noon, with no apparent lack of playful, joyful life. Soon they must fall like petals in an orchard, dry and wrinkled, not a wing of all the mighty host left to tingle the air. Nevertheless new myriads will arise in the spring, rejoicing, exulting, as if laughing cold death to scorn. August 29, clouds about point zero five, slight frost, bland, serene Indian summer weather. Have been gazing all day at the mountains, watching the changing lights. More and more they are clothed with light as a garment, white tinged with pale purple, palest during the midday hours, richest in the morning and evening. Everything seems consciously peaceful, thoughtful, faithfully waiting God's will. August 30 This day, just like yesterday, a few clouds motionless and apparently with no work to do beyond looking beautiful, frost enough for crystal-building, glorious fields of ice-diamonds destined to last but a night. How lavish is nature building—pulling down, creating, destroying, chasing every material particle from form to form—ever-changing, ever-beautiful. Mr Delaney arrived this morning, felt not a trace of loneliness when he was gone. On the contrary, I never enjoyed grander company. The whole wilderness seems to be alive and familiar, full of humanity. The very stones seem talkative, sympathetic, brotherly. No wonder when we consider that we all have the same father and mother. August 31 Clouds .05 Silky cirrus wisps and fringes, so fine they almost escape notice. Frost enough for another crop of crystals on the meadows, but none on the forests. The gentians, goldenrods, asters, etc., don't seem to feel it. Neither petals nor leaves are touched, though they seem so tender. Every day opens and closes like a flower, noiseless, effortless. Divine peace glows on all the majestic landscape like the silent enthusiastic joy that sometimes transfigures a noble human face. September. One. Clouds, point zero 0.05, motionless, of no particular colour, ornaments with no hint of rain or snow in them, all day calm, another grand throb of nature's heart, ripening late flowers and seeds for next summer, full of life and the thoughts and plans of life to come, and full of ripe and ready death, beautiful as life. Telling divine wisdom and goodness and immortality. Have been up to Mount Dana, making haste to see as much as I can now that the time of departure is drawing nigh. The views from the summit reach far and wide, eastward over the mono lake and desert. Mountains beyond mountains looking strangely barren and gray and bare, like heaps of ashes dumped from the sky. The lake, eight or ten miles in diameter, shines like a burnished disk of silver, no trees about its grey, ashy, cindery shores. Looking westward, the glorious forests are seen sweeping over countless ridges and hills, girdling domes and subordinate mountains, fringing in long curving lines the dividing ridges, and filling every hollow where the glaciers have spread soil-beds, however rocky or smooth. Looking northward and southward along the axis of the range, you see the glorious array of high mountains, crags and peaks and snow, the fountain-heads of rivers that are flowing west to the sea through the famous Golden Gate, and east to hot salt lakes and deserts to evaporate and hurry back into the sky. Innumerable lakes are shining like eyes beneath heavy rock-brows, bare or tree-fringed, or embedded in black forests. Meadow openings in the woods seem as numerous as the lakes, or perhaps more so. Far up the moraine-covered slopes and among crumbling rocks I have found many delicate hardy plants, some of them still in flower. The best gains of this trip were the lessons of unity and interrelation of all the features of the landscape revealed in general views. The lakes and meadows were located just where the ancient glaciers bore the heaviest at the foot of the steepest part of their channels, and of course their longest diameters are approximately parallel with each other and with the belts of forests, growing in long curving lines on the lateral and medial moraines, and in broad outspreading fields on the terminal beds deposited toward the end of the ice period when the glaciers were receding. The domes, ridges, and spurs also show the influence of glacial action in their forms, which approximately seem to be the forms of greatest strength with reference to the stress of oversweeping, past-sweeping, down-grinding ice-streams, survivals of the most resisting masses, all those most favourably situated. How interesting everything is! Every rock, mountain, stream plant, lake, lawn, forest, garden, bird, beast, insect, seems to call and invite us to come and learn something of its history and relationship. But shall the poor, ignorant scholar be allowed to try the lessons they offer? It seems too great and good to be true. I'll soon be going to the lowlands. The bread-camp must soon be removed. If I had a few sacks of flour an axe and some matches, I would build a cabin of pine logs, pile up plenty of firewood about it, and stay all winter to see the grand fertile snowstorms, watch the birds and animals that winter thus high, how they live, how the forests look snow-laden or buried, and how the avalanches look and sound on their way down the mountains. But now I'll have to go for there is nothing to spare in the way of provisions. I'll surely be back, however—surely I'll be back. No other place has ever so overwhelmingly attracted me as this hospitable, godful wilderness. September 2 A grand, red, rosy, crimson day—a perfect glory of a day. What it means I don't know. It is the first marked change from tranquil sunshine with purple mornings and evenings and still white noons. There is nothing like a storm, however—the average cloudiness only about point zero eight, and there is no sighting in the woods to betoken a big weather change. The sky was red in the morning and evening, the colour not diffused like the ordinary purple glow, but loaded upon separate, well-defined clouds that remained motionless as if anchored around the jagged mountain fenced horizon a deep red cap, bluffy around its sides, lingered a long time on Mount Dana and Mount Gibbs, drooping so low as to hide most of their bases but leaving Dana's round summit free, which seemed to float separate and alone over the big crimson cloud. Mammoth Mountain, to the south of Gibbs and Bloody Canyon, striped and spotted with snowbanks and clumps of dwarf pine, was also favoured with a glorious crimson cap, in the making of which there was no trace of economy—a huge bossy pile, coloured with a perfect passion of crimson, that seemed important enough to be sent off to burn among the stars in majestic independence. One is constantly reminded of the infinite lavishness and fertility of nature inexhaustible abundance amid what seems enormous waste. And yet when we look into any of her operations that lie within reach of our minds, we learn that no particle of her material is wasted or worn out. It is eternally flowing from use to use—beauty to yet higher beauty. And we soon cease to lament waste and death, and rather rejoice and exult in the imperishable unspendable wealth of the universe, and faithfully watch and wait the reappearance of everything that melts and fades and dies about us, feeling sure that its next appearance will be better and more beautiful than the last. I watch the growth of these red lands of the sky as eagerly as if new mountain ranges were being built. Soon the group of snowy peaks, in whose recesses lie the highest fountains of the Tuolumne, Merced, and North Fork of the San Joaquin, were decorated with majestic coloured clouds like those already described, but more complicated to correspond with the grand fountain-heads of the rivers they overshadowed. The Sierra Cathedral, to the south of camp, was overshadowed like Sinai never before noticed so fine a union of rock and cloud in form and colour and substance, drawing earth and sky together as one. And so human is it. Every feature and tint of colour goes to one's heart, and we shout, exulting in wild enthusiasm, as if all the divine show were our own. More and more in a place like this we feel ourselves part of wild nature, kin to everything. Spent most of the day high up on the north rim of the valley, commanding views of the clouds in all their red glory, spreading their wonderful light over all the basin, while the rocks and trees and many small alpine plants at my feet seemed hushed and thoughtful, as if they also were conscious spectators of the glorious New Cloud world. Here and there, as I plodded farther and higher, I came to small garden patches and ferneries just where one would naturally decide that no plant creature could possibly live. But, as in the region about the head of Mono Pass and the top of Dana, it was in the wildest, highest places that the most beautiful and tender and enthusiastic plant-people were found. Again and again, as I lingered over these charming plants, I said, How came you here? How do you live through the winter? Our roots, they explained, reach far down the joints of the summer-warmed rocks, and beneath our fine snow-mantle killing frost cannot reach us, while we sleep away the half-dark of the year, dreaming of spring. Ever since I was allowed entrance into these mountains I have been looking for Cassiope, said to be the most beautiful and best-loved of the heathworts. but, strange to say, I have not yet found it. On my high mountain walks I kept muttering, Cassiope, Cassiope. This name, as Calvinists say, is driven in upon me, notwithstanding the glorious host of plants that come about me uncalled as soon as I show myself. Cassiope seems the highest name of all the small mountain-heath people, and, as if conscious of her worth, keeps out of my way. I must find her soon, if at all, this year. September 4 All the vast sky-dome is clear, filled only with mellow Indian summer light. The pine and hemlock and fir-cones are nearly ripe, and are falling fast from morning to night cut off and gathered by the busy squirrels. Almost all the plants have matured their seeds, their summer work done, and the summer crop of birds and deer will soon be able to follow their parents to the foothills and plains at the approach of winter, when the snow begins to fly. September 5 No clouds. Weather Cool. Calm. Bright. As if no great thing was yet ready to be done, have been sketching the North Twellumney Church, the sunset gloriously coloured section fourteen